Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. I'm Ben Kiefer, and today you're listening to an archive edition of River to River. It's River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. My guest this hour is Sarah Chase. Many of you will know her name from the years she spent as a reporter for National Public Radio. Today, she's an internationally recognized expert on corruption and its implications. She's the author of Thieves of State, Why Corruption Threatens Global Security, and On Corruption in America, and What is at Stake. She's speaking a couple of times uh, later this month uh, while she visits Iowa. On September 27th, she'll be at Loris College, and September 28th, she'll be speaking at the University of Iowa. Sarah Chase, welcome to our program. What a pleasure, Ben. This is really an unusual path, a unique path that you have chosen uh, as uh, for a career, how it has unfolded. You uh, were reporting from Paris for National Public Radio. We know you from covering the war in the Balkans, also the fall of the Taliban in Afghanistan, to running, a, I think, a nonprofit, a soap factory in downtown Kandahar. Uh, at the, This is very early on in the Afghanistan war in the midst of a strengthening insurgency there. Then you served as a special assistant to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Then you uh, had a position at the Car- Carnegie Endowment for International Peace examining corruption around the world. I'm sure I left off a number of things. Quite an eventful career, Sarah. Uh, did I choose it or did it choose me? <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, it's like it, it, it's the um, the virtues of letting life have a vote. Um, And that's really what I did. One thing sort of led to another. Now, you know, when President Karzai's uncle says, wouldn't you come back and help us? uh, I'm not sure that my brain made a decision before my mouth said yes. Mm. (laughs) So, you know, I mean, it's about it's about following. It's about pushing the door. You know, and there's a there's mm-hmm. a logic to it, but the way the logic actually happens, like how it manifests itself, is always a surprise. Right. I want to talk to you more in depth a little bit later in the in the program about that that narrative that you've created for yourself that you've chosen or it chose you in your career. But first of all, you're going to speak in Iowa a couple of times. I'd like you to give us a preview of your talk, which is to to be on how corruption fuels international conflicts. Tell us uh, the messages you want to get across. Yeah, and this really came to me in Afghanistan. I didn't go to Afghanistan planning on thinking about corruption. It was Afghans who brought it to me and who were so indignant at the corruption of their government uh, as reinforced, right, by the United States and its its other international allies. Um, and this was a kind of corruption that they experienced every single day. I mean, it was getting shaken down by, you know, police in the street. It was having to pay the doctor to see their patient. Um, it was everywhere. And what's really important to understand, it, it, it wasn't just about money. It There was a humiliation that, accompanied the shakedowns. 
you know, in Afghanistan, if you're, you know, if a cop comes up to you and says, look at, I, my wife just had a, a, a baby. Um, we don't have any good cloth to wrap the baby in, you know, or my, my, my daughter doesn't have cho- shoes to go to school. I mean, an Afghan would take the shoes off his own daughter to give it away. But this was humiliating. And what I saw within a few years was that this humiliation was actually driving people to join the Taliban, that government corruption had as much to do um, with the kind of resurgence of the Taliban as any kind of abstract cultural, we hate Western culture sort of sentiment. And that was really surprising to me. And then in a talk in 2010, I discovered that um, it was a talk before an international audience and people came up to me afterwards saying, you just described my country. Well, I I thought that I was talking about some Afghan, you know, like exotica, right? And it Mm -hmm. turns, you know, and I start looking around and the people who were speaking to me, many of them came from other countries that had you know, extremist insurgencies in them. And so then I started looking around and I found that just about every country where there was an extremist insurgency was also plagued by this kind of systemic predatory corruption. And then you had the Arab Spring where an entire, you know, the top half of a continent or top, you know, part of a continent and halfway around the Mediterranean exploded. Everyone, and it was, those were anti-corruption revolutions. And then you had, um, you had uh, Ukraine in 2014. And unfortunately, it seems to me that corruption, at least as we discuss it here in this country, is kind of sterilized, right? You know, I mean, it's almost this sort of, technicality that's best left to bookkeepers. And so, whereas to me, there's an urgency to it that we haven't quite grasped. Right. And, and, and Sarah, when we're talking about it in, in this country, you know, corruption is something when I just sort of do a, just do, do a quick you know, Rorschach inkblot test on that word, <laughs> corruption, it's not something that we hear a lot about in our own media about us. It's usually about another country, and, or it's about our country, oh, in, in, in past decades or past centuries. That's exactly that what, right. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly Why right. Why is that? And even, well, um, first of all, there's this American exceptionalism, right? Um, we just, whether we know it or not, have a kind of supremacy complex, <laughs> you know? Um, and also, I think because of the tradition of rule of law, particularly, I would say, since, you know, about the New Deal, um, we've kind of driven corruption, not so much underground, but into more genteel um, practices. So the way corruption takes place in America is not, you know, people being shaken down at at, at the hospital door by a doctor. But, you know, you could argue that the unregulated, just to, you know, continue that, that example, the 
unregulated um, way that medicine operates in this country. For example, the fact that the government is not allowed to bargain um, over prices for medical services, that that is the result of a corrupt collusion between big businessmen in pharma and government officials who often, you know, will then take a seat on the board of the pharma company, you know, that they were regulating some years before. And so that's what I'm getting at when I talk about corruption, particularly in this country. It's not, we shouldn't be reducing it in our minds to the idea of someone, you know, stealing the furniture, right? Or putting their hands in the cookie jar. It's actually a somewhat subtler set of operations uh, on the part of networks of people that link both government officials and businessmen, and in some countries, businessmen and women, and in some countries, out and out criminals, you know, like drug traffickers or or weapon smugglers or whatever. Um, it's the network that's operating for the benefit of its members. And the members often trade places among these different sectors of activity. Um, and so I think we have, it's sort of like the frog in the hot water. We've kind of gotten used to it, to yeah. the way it's it's performed here. In fact, when I was researching on corruption in America, I was asking legal professionals and experts about, you know, a series of Supreme Court decisions that essentially legalized what you and I would consider corruption. And what I got back from from these lawyers was, well, if, you know, this conviction were allowed to stand, um, that amounts to criminalizing politics. I thought, wow, everyone said to me that corruption is just part of Afghan culture. But but what am I looking at here? Doesn't it sound like corruption has become part of American culture so that we don't even recognize it anymore? I'm Ben Kiefer. More after a short break. It's River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Today you've been listening to an archive edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. If you've just joined us, Sarah Chase is my guest uh, this uh, hour, former NPR reporter, uh, an internationally recognized expert on corruption and its implications. Hard to believe, Sarah, you've been out of... um, reporting for a national public radio for some 20 years now. Uh, Tell me about it. <laughs> the white hair shows it. <laughs> uh, I'll mention again, Sarah is the author of a couple of books, uh, one uh, titled The Thieves of State, Why Corruption Threatens Global Security. Well, okay, then you've given me sort of a fact check here because, um, you know, it, it is true that we, I think genteel is the word that you use, we tidy up our American corruption with, different packaging, different words. But I, I have to ask, because we're in a campaign season, uh, what about c- could you consider, you know, are 
the, the way we do elections here, gerrymandering. Uh, what about uh, the, fi- the way we finance our campaigns and dark money? How does that fit into your, your study of corruption around the world? A hundred percent. That's exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about. Um, and, you know, I mean, campaign financing is, is terrifically problematic, particularly the fact that uh, not so-called nonprofit organizations, that is organizations that are, that are given the subsidy of the taxes that they actually owe, that they ought to be paying to the United States government, um, that they engage in nakedly partisan activities, but because they're nonprofits, their donations remain hidden. And that's what you're talking about when you say dark money. Let's add to it uh, an even more hidden side, which is the, the, the payments to public officials are often not only made in campaign contributions, but there are personal benefits that are given by large corporations to their, you know, to the members of their networks who hold political office, often in the form, as I suggested before, of, you know, seats on boards after they're finished with their public service or very lucrative speaking engagements or employment for their relatives or whatever. There's a whole other tissue of exchange that, um, that really we're not seeing because, again, it's not under U.S. law, it's not illegal. But it certainly is what you could consider a sort of quid pro quo. Yeah. And back to your frog in the water thing, we've now, you know, grown up with this. A lot of us have gotten used to the idea that, you know, our politicians receive millions and millions of dollars. Maybe that's from Big Pharma. Maybe that's from the uh, gun lobby or something like that. And then when asked about it, they'll perhaps even be indignant and say that absolutely has no, no, no part in the way I vote and uh, decide what policies to support. And, and that's some of what you're talking about. It is. Uh, I am speaking to you from the state of West Virginia. Um, our Senator Joe Manchin uh, makes that kind of protestations and insists that, you know, he uh, votes in ways that align exactly with the positions of fossil, fossil fuel companies for the good of the citizens of West Virginia. Well, let me tell you, the amount of employment uh, in one side of the balance against the amount of destruction of property, of roads, of infrastructure, of, of our wild and wonderful landscape is just no comparison. He is not uh, holding those positions for the ben- benefit of the citizens of this state. Um, and so they can say what they want. All you have to do is look at the voting record. Let me let me pull you back, tug you back to your main thesis. <laughs> the, yeah, the and way, actually, uh, before you do that, Ben, can I yep. just um, add something else to the sure. frog in the frog in the yeah, okay. in the hot water uh, okay. analogy, which is I would say that since you know about 2015, the American public has been waking up to corruption in this country. If you look at that incredibly startling uh, presidential election in which two 
I want to say, non-mainstream candidates, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, you know, were drawing voters in numbers that had mainstream politicians agog, right? They mm -hmm. both, and I'm not trying to compare them in terms of, of, of their visions for this country, but they both made corruption a major campaign issue. You're speaking uh, about how corruption fuels international conflicts, but when we put it here on our home turf here in, in, in the U.S., uh, you're saying eyes are opening to corruption here, and is that fueling our more our the the conflict in our politics for the first time in recent years? You know, we've heard talk, serious talk about civil war. I think absolutely. Uh, I think absolutely. Uh, you could see um, the election of 2016 as being a kind of extremist voting. So it wasn't violent extremism at that phase, but um, inflamed by deliberate manipulations on the part of, um, frankly, people in both parties, pitting American citizens against each other, usually along identity lines, there gets to be this kind of confluence between indignation at corruption and this almost projection of guilt onto the other political side. And, you know, you're getting, as you say, um, uh, I mean, people are getting really violent in this country and uh, around these issues. Um, and extremist voting, I've also seen it in other countries, you know, where you get... Um, You've gotten, you know, authoritarians into power in places like uh, Turkey or Hungary or Brazil, um, extremist parties, even in, you know, Germany or France or, or England. Um, and, you know, so that also is a form of the kind of extremism that I'm talking about. And it's just not going to take too long, I'm afraid, before some match gets put to this Tinder. Yeah, right. And perhaps it already has in some small way a, a bit of an elephant in the room as we talk about international conflicts and conflicts in our in, in, rising partisanship in our own country. January 6th. How does, how does your study of corruption around the world and in our country fit into that narrative, the run-up to January 6th and its aftermath? Um, well, the first thing I want to say is the irony of it all. Um, you know, indignant people often turn to a wrecking ball, right? Um, the Taliban, nobody could have said that the Taliban were a superior form of government than um, the one that the United States and its allies were supporting in Afghanistan. But when you get that indignant, you want a wrecking ball. Sometimes it's your own head that gets smashed, but that is often an instinct. And um, so that's one point to make, is that any, I want to say, um, objective examination of the Trump administration could not conclude that it was less corrupt than any other uh, recent U.S. administration. 
Um, but you could also suggest that in a lot of ways, the Trump administration was a wrecking ball. So that's that's one point. The second point is, um, you know, the implications of systemic corruption have been felt in this country, not just in recent years, but in previous decades. And I, uh, in Corruption in America, I took a much closer look than I expected I would at the period from, you know, about 1870 to about 1935. And what was yeah. perpetrated on the American public, both uh, small farmers who were driven off their land by wealthy absentee, absentee landlords or turned into, um, you know, ind basically indentured servants, I mean, sharecroppers, uh, white as well as black, um, and then, you know, were kind of shoveled into the maw of pretty inhuman industrial factories and mines and sugar, you know, sugar refineries and things like that. Um, they eventually won um, some things like minimum wage and some minimal safety standards and working conditions. And then within 30, 40 years, a lot of those jobs were being moved overseas where the same protections didn't exist. So you're talking dispossession, multi-generational dispossession. Um, and certainly minorities such as Blacks and Native Americans got by miles the worst of this. But, you know, whites in the middle of the country were not unscathed, you know, and Iowa farms look a lot different now than they did, you know, in in 1860. They sure um, do. Sarah, Sarah, we have to take a break. We'll be back with Sarah Chase. Uh, so glad to have Sarah with us. Uh, a former NPR reporter, hard to believe, 20 years ago she left uh, that status and moved on to many other things. She's now an internationally recognized expert on corruption and its implications, author of a couple of books, uh, most recently Thieves of State, Why Corruption Threatens Global Security. Sarah, stay put, please. We'll be back after a short break. I'm Ben Kiefer. It's River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. been listening to an encore edition of River to River. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to an archive edition of River to River. I'm Ben Kiefer. Today, uh, the good fortune of being with Sarah Chase. Uh, she has done so much in her life, uh, reporting at NPR from Paris, uh, the covering the Balkans, the fall of the Taliban in Afghanistan, uh, served as a special assistant to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Sarah, when we had to go to break, we were finishing up our conversation about January 6th, and I'm, uh, you were leading up to something, and I, we had to go to break, but your observations about January 6th, its causes, uh, with the experience you have looking all around the world at corruption. 
given what ordinary Americans suffer from what I would call corruption, um, in, in some ways, I'm surprised there weren't more people attacking the Capitol. I'm not excusing the action any more than I excuse the atrocities of the Taliban. But, um, you know, elsewhere in other countries, I've seen reactions to this kind of um, behavior on the part of the wealthy and powerful that are much more devastating. Um, Donald Trump uh, showing, that though he's been an out, out of office for over a year and a half, um, uh, uh, flexing a lot of his muscles during the primaries, uh, uh, showing uh, he's very popular with tens of millions of Americans. How do you explain Donald Trump's enduring influence in our politics? Um, politics has become a team sport. If people fundamentally doubt whether their personal fortunes um, improve under one party or another, or if they suspect that those fortunes only improve, you know, in some trivial way, whereas the elites of both parties um, are making out, um, then it's not policies that move those people so much as a sense of um, belonging to a team. I wrote a paper for Carnegie looking at anti-corruption uprisings around the world. And part of that paper was um, looking at the, the counter moves that corrupt networks deployed against populations that were indignant at corruption. And the most effective counter move, whether in Lebanon or in you know, Romania or here, was to play on people's cultural and identity divides. Um, in the end, when we are threatened, when we feel threatened, as a species, you know, we kind of circle the wagons around what we feel to be our in-group. And cynical political leaders um, can very effectively seem to affiliate themselves, right, with one team or another and play on that team spirit. Um, and and there's been some pretty interesting sociological work demonstrating that once that happens, Liliana Mason is a terrific uh, sociologist at the University of Maryland, and she really has demonstrated that once that kind of identity affiliation kicks in, people don't hold the leaders of their own party up to their own promises uh, or, or statements because the draw of being part of that team is stronger. Mm -hmm. As a former uh, correspondent, Sarah, I have to ask you, in all of this that you've been discussing, we've been discussing, what role do our media play in the current state of our politics? Your assessment, in particular, of the different major news organizations, Fox, CNN, uh, New York Times, Washington Post, NPR. That's a great question. And I'm afraid that my response is that they too have become polarized. And so I find 
little appetite in the mainstream media for self-examination. I find little appetite, at least on this issue of corruption. Um, I think we've seen some appetite for examination on matters of identity, right? Um, of inclusion and, and things like that, but almost none on corruption. I would, you know, challenge anyone to see, to, to find me a Fox News uh, exploration of corruption within the Trump administration. And similarly, I would challenge you to find an NPR expose or consideration of the reality of Hunter Biden's position on um, the board of a flamboyantly corrupt Ukrainian energy company when his father was vice president. Um, it's... It, we make excuses, even the media, I'm afraid, makes excuses for its side. Now, what you have started to see, is, um, you've seen the explosion of investigative journalism in this area. Um, you can think about the Panama Papers or the Paradise Papers, or there have been a series of these um, that have been incredibly interesting and valuable. Um, and exposed a lot of corruption around the world and led in some places to, you know, the toppling of, of, major, of, of, of um, senior government officials. However, I still find that that work is pointing a finger in some other direction. You know what I mean? As you said earlier on in this conversation, the corrupt people, the kleptocrats are over there. They're Ukrainians or they're Kazakhs or they're Angolans or they're mm -hmm. Hondurans, right? And American institutions, yeah, they're bad for facilitating that corrupt activity, but we're still um, really reluctant to see ourselves in the mirror of a country like Afghanistan. Yeah. I wonder, to bring it down onto an individual level, going from the media we consume, um, how do we, is there a, a thought experiment or a test that we can as individuals do to test our own partisanship, to discover our own blind spots to corruption that is right in front of us, perhaps? What a great question, Ben. I think that Let's start by holding our own to account, right? I mean, if when we, it's so easy, and this goes back to the Bible, right? You know, the, uh, the, the speck in someone else's eye. Let's look at the speck in our own eye, even if it's only a speck. Um, let's take a look at that. I think that would be a really effective exercise. Another exercise would be just to flip the script. If, you know, a vice president of the opposite party, if his son were on the board of a flamboyantly corrupt foreign energy company, a position for which he had no qualifications, how would we feel about that? Mm -hmm. Um, and I think just 
doing those exercises, the equivalency exercises, and stopping yourself when you're about to say, yes, but, you know, what about X or Y? That's often our reaction. There's an accusation leveled against a, uh, an official of our political orientation. And we'll say, yeah, but what about so-and-so? Yeah. Like, stop right. and, yourself. <laughs> yeah. Right. And that matches up. Uh, I, I teach a course uh, uh, um, periodically here in Iowa, and I'm about to teach it again. And one of the exercises matches up with exactly what you said. And these are retired people that I'm, that I'm teaching. Oh, uh, neat. Uh, and, and so I say, you have to find someone you don't agree with on a policy. Not your complete political opposite, perhaps, but somebody you know in your neighborhood, perhaps, you disagree with, or perhaps somebody you get together with for coffee, and you just don't go certain places because you know it won't end well, right? So take that person and ask them about their position on that, but you may not do the but thing that you just mentioned. You you have to truly try, try to understand their position without interfering with their explanation of it. What a great thing to have people do. And I would um, even on that one add something else. Um, Try to rephrase what they just said to you. Put what they just said into your own words with a question mark at the end. Like, is this what you mean? So it's just like couples therapy. (laughs) <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's just you're like... right. Maybe that's what we need as a country, some couples therapy. Because, and, and here's why, it's not just that we want, you know, civility to reign in this country. It's that um, so long as we are clawing each other's eyes out, the rich are still laughing all the way to the bank. The rich and corrupt are laughing all the way to the bank. So let's let's have you cast your eye to the future knowing what you know sarah chase about corruption uh, in countries around the world corruption in our country what possible paths do you see for our democracy going forward is democracy guaranteed we've always thought so growing up in this country haven't we I'm not sure you want to end on my answer to that question. That was the question I asked myself when I went back and looked at the last period during which such systemic corruption reigned, you know, around the world. And that was the period from approximately 1870 until, you know, basically the period of the New Deal, which had its parallels uh, in other industrialized countries. And my question was, what got us out of it that time? What got us out of it that time? And here's what I came up with. World War I, the Great Depression, World War II. That's two genocides, a pandemic analogous to COVID, Uh, an economic meltdown that we haven't seen the likes of since, um, use of the nuclear bomb. A string of of earth-shaking calamities is what it took to generate the kind of 
solidarity, the sort of egalitarian principle that always arises in an emergency. I mean, think of the last time there was a flood in your neighborhood. Everyone's helping everyone. Nobody cares what color you are or what class you are or what political party you are. That's how we respond to calamity. But in order for our polities to change, it took a string of global calamities. So that's why I have this sense of urgency about this, because if we can't generate the sense of urgency to address this before horror strikes, who knows what the magnitude of the catastrophe is going to look like this century. What can we as individuals do to avert uh, what you just described? There's tons that we can do. Um, and On Corruption in America ends with a chapter that really is aimed at um, us, regular people, how we can change the pattern. And it includes, it really has to do with making choices. Um, we could choose to stand together with our neighbors to hold political candidates to some basic ethics pledge and pledge amongst ourselves that we will hold them to that regardless of their political party. Um, we can choose not to uh, buy from companies that are wound into this type of monopolistic uh, corrupt networks. Um, and that sometimes means, you know, we things might be just a little bit less convenient. But what I've found when I've started to do that is sometimes less convenient can mean more fun. <laughs> you know, like, let's make, if we have to join together to go to a farmer's market, you know, to drive to a farmer's market, let's make a party out of it. You know, yeah. instead of go yeah. just going to the nearest dollar store. And I'm not saying this is always possible, but a lot of this is within our means. And I'm not saying martyr yourself. I'm saying let's make the fight a celebration. All right. Sarah Chase, we'll end it there. Thank you so much for spending this hour with us. It's been a delight to, to hear your thoughts and uh, your analysis of the world in which we live, uh, the uh, corruption uh, around the world, including here in, in the U.S. Um, I think uh, you've given us a lot to, to chew over in the coming days. Thank you, Sarah Chase. Thank you so much, Ben, and I really look forward to coming to Iowa. Sarah Chase will be in Iowa visiting Loris College to speak on the 27th of September, and then on the 28th of September, she'll be at the University of Iowa. Sarah Chase, thank you so much. You take care. You too, Ben. River to River Today, produced by Danny Gear with help from Natalie Dunlop. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.